0: From across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you.
1: Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society.
0: Thank you very much, um, ladies and gentlemen, uh, many friends in the audience, uh, colleagues, many people from Ego here. So um, uh, if there's tricky, tricky questions later on, then I might just bat them off elsewhere, you know, save my own embarrassment. Um, it's a, uh, it's a pleasure to be here to speak to you about uh, the flight testing uh, of the EGO. Um, uh, as uh, John has said, my name Keith Dennison. Um, I, you know the little green E there, that's, um, that's entirely there for uh, Tony Bishop's um, uh, enjoyment, just to show that I'm very really brand conscious about this aeroplane. Um, my aim this evening um, is to uh, talk to you Uh, for about 50-55 minutes something like that and then that should allow uh, about 30 minutes for questions uh, at the end. Um, What I thought I would do um, to start is uh, it is highly likely that many of you um, are quite familiar with our project with the Ego aeroplane but there may be some of you who are not so what I want to do is a very brief uh, rush through the background to the aeroplane and how it came about so that we're all on the same page before we start talking about flight testing. Um, So it started back in uh, 2007-ish when our CAA made uh, a then groundbreaking decision uh, to go for deregulation. And one of the uh, products of that deregulation was this brand new single-seat deregulated category. Um, What did that mean? Well, back in 2007 when it was thought of uh, it meant um, the aeroplane had to be single seat. Um, it had to have a maximum empty weight of 115 kilograms. Uh, think about that. It's, um, you know, some people are heavier than that. Um, uh, at that basic empty weight, um, it had to have a wing loading of less than 10 kilograms uh, per meter squared. So if you work it out, you had to have 11 and a half square meters of wing um, and it had to have a stall speed or more correctly a minimum control speed of uh, 35 knots or less and if you met all those criteria then basically the aeroplane itself was deregulated the CAA just didn't want to know um, the pilot had to be appropriately licensed it had to be, the aeroplane has to be registered have a registration number has to be insured but after that go fly which is great Really good. Um, now, in 2015, this year, um, but we sort of ran up to it through last year with lots of uh, consultation, etc., in which uh, Ego Aeroplanes took a, a full part. Um, uh, the decision was taken to expand that deregulation, um, and now the rules are providing your single seat, less than maximum 300 kilograms, all up weight. Or 315, if you set, uh, fit a ballistic recovery uh, parachute, um, and still got that less than or equal to 35 knot stall speed, then you're not regulated. Now, this change um, uh, was very, very welcome, and as you will see as I go through this evening, um, it had some impact on our on our design as we went through. Um, as a result of the deregulation, the PFA, as it was, Popular Flying Association, um, uh, set a competition, a design competition. And they said, you yeah, know, it's an exciting new category. Let's have people's designs uh, in basically two categories, one of which was a fairly state-of-the-art, advanced sort of aeroplane. And uh, Tony Bishop and uh, Giotto Castelli got together and they said, let's give this a go. And they gave it a go and, um, and they won it. Uh, They won the advanced category, uh, and that's the uh, PFA magazine, October 2007, saying, you know, here is the Ego aeroplane. So uh, that was uh, basically when the whole thing started. Um, Their concept was very much they wanted to design an aeroplane that was going to be a nice aeroplane, inverted commas, a nice aeroplane, fun to fly. I've put design-driven, it sounds obvious, but... Um, what I mean by that is, they had this aspiration for it to be a aesthetically pleasing aeroplane, something that you would be proud to own, not not a collection of tin tubes and fabric and things, but something that you look at and go, Phew, "That's really nice." Yeah, that's going to win design competitions. That is. Um, they had a specific interest in canards, uh, and they were keen to cherry pick technologies from wherever they could find them, not necessarily typical. Uh, aviation industry technologies, but, for instance, there's a lot of um, uh, the structural know-how in this aeroplane has come out of Formula One, for instance. Um, so, uh, they were keen to cherry-pick technologies uh, and they basically had a blank sheet of paper, um, let their minds run mad, and uh, this is what they came up with. Uh, why canard. canard um, first thing, uh, absolutely exceptional view, and ladies and gentlemen, I have to tell you, it is an ex- absolutely exceptional view out of the cockpit. It is one of the best features of the aeroplane. It's a delight every time you fly it. Um, it also gives a very ideal seating position. It's become a bit of a, uh, almost a tradition in the company that um, whenever I do a test flight, I come back, as I did off the first flight, and I just sit in the aeroplane and everybody gathers around and, and we chat about it. Um, because there's no rush to get out. It's actually a very nice place to be. I've got the most comfortable seat in the house. It's great. Um, The aerodynamics are efficient. Canard always um, efficient aerodynamically because every surface is always lifting. It has to be unlike a, a conventional tailplane aeroplane where in some parts of the flight envelope, the tailplane is pulling downwards and therefore it's destroying lift, not making it. Structurally, it's quite efficient. There are many frames in the aeroplane that can be made to do multiple things. Uh, for instance, uh, the, um, the uh, uh, main uh, frame that picks up the undercarriage also picks up the main spar. So you can, you can make the structure very efficient. Um, it's very difficult to stall. We'll talk about stalling later on and what actually what it means in a canard aeroplane. And um, the other thing Canard does is enables you to sort of build, um, if you will, an egg. Um, it's almost like an egg, the uh, the, the fuselage. Um, so it makes it very, very robust and protects the pilot in, in the case of any mishap. Um, so as, as far as we got on the background, there was significant interest after the PFA con- uh, competition. Lots of people contacted Giotto and Tony and said, hey, look, you know, I love this aeroplane, when can I buy one? And they said, no, just a, you know, just a mind game. And um, the market wasn't happy with that. So uh, they went ahead, they developed the aircraft, they developed a commercial proposition and launched the company in September 2011. A lot of work was done. Actually, a lot of very um, sort of high-end work, if you will. Uh, Cranfield and Cambridge universities were both very, very helpful. Um, Uh, in uh, helping with computational fluid dynamics and uh, wind tunnel work. A lot of students were given these sorts of things, uh, given the aircraft as projects. Um, So uh, a lot of really, really good work was done um, that you might associate with uh, much, much higher end aircraft. Structurally, uh, a lot of work done on uh, uh, structural techniques that might be applied. Uh, Load tests, you can see one of the load tests going on here, all these sandbags on the wing Um, and uh, so a lot of work was done to validate the design Um, and eventually uh, we went flying. Uh, 24th October 2013, you can see it was an absolutely glorious day so I'd basically run out of excuses uh, and I had to go fly and uh, there it is and uh, uh, a great day it was. Just while I've got that very convenient picture up, um, for those of you that uh, are intrigued by some of this uh, stuff and it will be relevant as we go on, um, the control of the aeroplane, pitch control basically through elevators on the canard here, so we've got elevators that that, uh, give us pitch, we've got ailerons, fairly conventional ailerons uh, on the wings here, and we've got rudders on uh, the tips of the fins. The rudders only go out. So basically if I stand on the left pedal, the left-hand rudder goes out, the right-hand rudder stays faired. If I go the other way the other way, if I stand on both rudders, they both go out, and that's the air brake. All right and we'll come on to air braking a bit later. Um, right out of the box, the little aeroplane was great. I mean, it showed tremendous potential. Um, it wasn't perfect by any means, as, and we'll discuss that as we go through the lecture, um, but that's, uh, we had an official first flight. Um, we, uh, we invited all our supporters, sponsors, investors, families, friends, you know, big jamboree. We flew the aeroplane, and that's the display I did. So that's flight number five, and you can see I was turning the aeroplane around and doing a, um, a fairly... Uh, lively display. I think it surprised quite a few people. So right out the box the aeroplane was great and it was showing great potential. What we're going to talk about for the rest of the evening because I'm a test pilot is problems. Um, You know your job as a test pilot is to tell designers that their baby is ugly. Uh, They don't like it but they have to put up with it. Um, So uh, but please as we go through all these problems remember that. Basically, the aeroplane was very good from the beginning, still very good, it's getting better. Right, right. into the bulk of the lecture, that's what I'm going to talk about. Um, The flight test approach we took, uh, immediate issues, basic stuff, braking, steering, canopy misting, engine cooling, uh, air data, propellers, rotation, how to get the nose up on takeoff? uh, engine characteristics and failures, none of them to do with the engine, I hasten to add, in case there's anybody from Rotron here. Um, uh, Directional stability and control, this is one of the big issues, Uh, adverse aid on yaw, longitudinal stability and control and stalling, and finally flight path control uh, on the approach. So that's the sort of menu uh, for this evening. Uh, Right at the end I'll do a few lessons learned, uh, what next, and uh, we'll take questions at the end. first bit is going to go quite fast and as we get into the stability and control stuff we might slow down a little bit um, just to take our time through that bit. Okay, flight test approach, mustn't forget there was a one-third scale model. Um, good idea by the company, I wasn't involved at that time. Um, but a one-third scale model was made and it was flown very, very successfully by um, one of the. Uh, one of the country's leading uh, radio control model pilots and he was very impressed by the, uh, by the handling of the aeroplane and that actually did a great deal to sort of further validate the design and give confidence that, you know, we we're on the right track. Um, when we came to first flight we went to Tibbenham just south of Norwich, great big airfield, uh, B-17 base in the Second World War, three runways, hard runways, Um, uh, Quiet, not much going on, so we pretty much had the place to ourselves. It was great, and the three runways meant that um, when the wind was blowing, we could always pretty much take out the crosswind. Um, So it was a great place to go. It was a long way to go, but it was a great place to go for the initial uh, flying. Uh, We started off just doing taxiing around, checking out braking, steering, ground stability, um, how the aeroplane behaved in, uh, in stiffish winds and crosswinds. Uh, one of my personal concerns uh, as we approached flight testing was, you know, it weighs 115 kilos. Um, I'm only about 70 soaked wet through, so yeah, the whole thing, it's not going to weigh very much and actually if you start taxing it around in 24 knots of wind, is it just going to blow over? Um, don't know. It, uh, it turned out it's incredibly stable on the ground when the wind's blowing. We, we taxed it around Tibbenham in 26 knots one day and all right, it quivers around a bit, but basically it's absolutely fine. Um, we uh, professed to uh, hops uh, to check out uh, three-axis stability control. That hop there is the first one where I sort of had a tentative go with the uh, with the ailerons. Um, uh, but uh, basically we did hops at about, as you can see, three or four feet. So if anything really bad happened, then uh, we could collapse back onto the ground. Uh, we then did... Um, some high hops, what I call high hops, basically just let it climb for a moment just to um, reinforce the fact to me, more than anybody else, that yes, it is going to climb and I am going to at least be able to get round a circuit. So high hops for a performance, and then we flew. Uh, And just before we flew, um, David was looking at that moon, David down here, and he said, can you fly past the moon? I said, yeah, I can do that. There There we go. Um, Lovely picture, as you can see, it really was a glorious day. Uh, We then progressively expanded the envelope um, out to something which we thought was usable for the initial flight test period. Um, So we went up to 2G and we went up initially 90 knots, 100 knots, 110 knots and we stopped there. Um, That was enough uh, just for the time being uh, while we sorted out some of the problems which I'm going to talk about. Uh, The development phase uh, where we've been teasing out the problems uh, we went to grass airfields uh, to prove the aeroplane would operate on grass um, and actually it operates very nicely on, on grass. Uh, we operate out of Main Hall Farm, that's where the aeroplane is built and that's a particularly unpleasant piece of grass but the aeroplane copes with that as well. Um, so uh, uh, unlike those of, some of you will be in the audience will be familiar with Veries and Long Easies and you know they're very much hard run by aeroplanes but note the ego very happy on grass. Uh, And then finally we did transits uh, to displays and demonstrations and we mustn't forget the benefit of actually just getting in the aeroplane and trying to treat it the way customers are going to treat it in due course. Um, So, you know, just use the aeroplane, get into it, go places and you learn things, you learn things. You can get terribly wrapped up in flight testing but you actually just have to get out and use the aeroplane the way it's intended to be used. Um, Right, brakes. Brakes. High-end mountain brakes is what we've got, Um, uh, and they work very well. They work very well, they work very well now. Um, Finger-actuated, this is the throttle, or it was the throttle, it's different now, and we had um, uh, these um, little toggles either side of the throttle. So you worked it like this, left and right brake. Um, problems uh, we had a lot of pro- initial problems with binding we would taxi around and you know, you'd end up going slower and slower and slower and eventually you'd so sort of, you'd get to almost full power and you're still not moving and you go hmm, there's a problem here um, so uh, we had a lot of problems initially with binding and, and the setting up of the brakes sometimes they were just ineffective they just didn't work um, which is bad um, they were hard to use. this was this was really awkward Um, it was doing wonders for my guitar playing in terms of getting strength in the hand but um, but as a mechanism for getting force into the brakes it was poor Um, so we re-engineered the mechanism uh, many many times uh, to try and get more mechanical advantage into this system Um, and it was marginally successful Um, But that change in the regulations, the lift to 300 kilograms uh, maximum all up, uh, was uh, a great thing for us because what it did was so many of the things in the aeroplane that had been pared down, pared down, pared down because it had to be light, it had to be less than 115. We knew it was going to be a real challenge, so there was no weight wasted anywhere if we could help it. Um, But when it went to 300 kilograms all up, and we were looking at about 243 all up, so Um, Whilst you don't want to just throw weight on the aeroplane willy-nilly because that costs you performance, but nevertheless it meant that we were able to do some of the things in the aeroplane that we would have liked to have done but hadn't done just because we were trying to save weight. Um, So we moved to uh, foot-operated brakes. Uh, These are the rudder rudder bars here uh, and these blades here, the green uh, metal, you can see stick out and basically by just towing your your, uh, toes in and pressing on those blades, that's your braking. It's now very easy to use, Uh, it's very effective um, and uh, makes the aeroplane very good. The remaining issue we have with the brakes is mown grass accumulation. We found that taxiing around airfields when they've been recently mown, the, uh, the brakes pick up grass and they become less effective. They've never become ineffective but they do become less effective. And that's an issue that we're uh, working through at the moment. Steering, um, there was a fixation on brakes, we had so much issue with brakes and uh, um, uh, Rich Miranda, one of our engineering guys, became so adept at sort of dangling the fuselage in sort of weird angles to get the bleeding of the brakes absolutely perfect and he re-rigged those brakes so many times, poor chap. Um, But there was this sort of you know, everything was to do with the brakes. Um, But then it was difficult to steer, and I thought, oh, that's the blooming brakes, you know, and then one day I actually did a landing where I deliberately braked quite hard to try and, you know, prove the braking system, and you go, hmm, oh, actually, that was quite good. Hmm, perhaps it isn't the brakes. No, it wasn't the brakes, it was um, the nose wheel originally had a nylon bearing um, done for weight, all right and what we found was actually the the nylon bearing uh, on the nose wheel was wearing and it was binding and it and the nose wheel just wasn't castering as freely as it should have done whenever there was nobody in the airplane and people looked at it it felt ever so free but as soon as somebody got into it and you get the weight on it then it was binding um, so uh, we redesigned it uh, in this area here this is where the uh, nylon tube used to be and we put in basically two proper roller bearings. All right, cost a bit of weight but it was worth it. aeroplane is now very agile and very precise on the ground. It's actually very easy to move around it so you can turn it very tightly. Uh, just while I'm on nose wheels, another issue we had was uh, Shimmy, very sharp-eyed. Um, um, David there um, noticed that this was going on and got this great picture uh, you can see this nose wheel is uh, not in a happy state at the moment, I'm just taxiing down that taxiway. Before this we'd never had any shimmy but uh, this was um, at Siwal um, uh, last year and, uh, and all of a sudden we got this big shimmy as I was taxiing back. Um, the uh, root cause was basically the side plates on uh, on the nose wheel. Um, they were pared down, weight again. Um, and uh, they weren't quite man enough for the job. So we thickened them up and we've had no no recurrence of uh, the shimmying issue. Uh, canopy misting was another issue. You can, you can see we did the first flight in October. We did a whole bunch of test flying in December. Um, we gave ourselves a hard time basically, didn't we? Very short days. It was cold. Whoops, sorry. Let me just go backwards. Uh, it was cold. and uh, and you can see that, uh, you know, we did get some canopy misting problems which meant I had to do a lot of housework more than flying um, at that stage of the test programme. We fixed it by jury rigging some little holes at the front and some tubes which blew air around onto the canopy Um, and we also cut some, classic little vents uh, on the side and that fixed the problem uh, for the prototype aeroplane For the production aeroplane, we've got a a nice system which uh, is going to route air round into this instrument billicle here. You can just see slots in the top of it and basically the air blows out of there and it it keeps the uh, the canopy clear. Engine cooling was another issue. Um, We found, particularly as we came into the summer of last year, we were increasingly getting limited time on the ground, uh, limited taxiing distance before the engine was overheating. And we're also seeing very high coolant temperatures in the climb. Um, first thing we did was these top surface louvers were steadily modified to remove um, a barrier to the air. Basically, we took more and more louvers out. Um, we also had some um, computational fluid dynamics done on the uh, cooling ducts. What we've got here is uh, this is the intake for the, um, under the wing here. And you can see this airflow coming in in here. Basically, green airflow air going fast, blue air flow, air absolutely stagnant. So you can see that uh, what was happening was air was blowing in but it was sticking to this bottom edge of the uh, of the duct and we had this big void here of absolutely stagnant air that was not going anywhere. This is the radiator so essentially we only had cold air going through about maybe a third, third, 40% of the uh, radiator. What we did about it, um, we put a splitter plate um, in the coolant duct and split this this airflow so that we've now got an area going here and an area going here. We're still getting stagnant air in the duct, but um, we're now getting good cooling performance. Um, So uh, it's it's good enough for now, um, but we've certainly got some ideas for the future, uh, for future versions of the ego and ways of of improving this whole cooling system and making it more efficient because actually given that we're getting cooling good cooling at the moment um, you have to notwithstanding the fact that these radios are very small already it's a possibility we might even be able to make them smaller air data calibration um, we had no air data boom on the aeroplane for first flight but we did need to calibrate the pedostatic system which we initially did using the GPS triangle method <coughs> very successful um, but we did need uh, some credible angle of attack and sideslip data um, to do the analysis of some of the problems we had so we came up with this uh, boom which actually worked extremely well um, we've got uh, one vane on the front here which uh, is in the angle of attack mode at the moment but it can be swivelled through 90 degrees so that it works for side-slip so depending on what aspect of the aeroplane we were looking at it we would configure the boom uh, the way we wanted it. The original hope had been that we would be able to use this one to calibrate these two and then maybe go to a short boom all the time. But actually the ca- we found that the calibration for these, um, these near-field um, veins was, um, it was very non-linear. It was not particularly uh, repeatable. So actually the majority of the work we've done um, with this boom or with that vein so you can see the, uh, the boom on the aeroplane being used uh, We also developed a, a pretty comprehensive um, system for gathering data and video and collating it all um, in one flight test screen uh, which has been uh, quite useful, you won't be able to see that, that's a bit bigger but you can see we've got various uh, graphs, we can do various cross plots, we've got time histories We've got video synced with it here. Um, So in terms of getting a a single view of what's going on, uh, that was a a great little piece of kit. And thank you to uh, Lawrence Hardwick for a lot of hard work in putting that together. Propeller selection, um, uh, we flew a wide range of propellers um, trying to get uh, the best propeller for the aeroplane. The the initial flying was done with a, a three blader. Um, but we looked at uh, there was a su- you know uh, a suggestion that that was not the best thing, um, so we looked at other types. Um, thank you very much to Helix Propellers who've been very indulgent with us. Um, they basically said, provided you come to us and buy propellers for your production airplanes eventually, you, you know, we'll give you keep giving you aeropl- propellers to try, and they did that. They've been very good. Um, uh, I think maybe we could have applied a bit more science to the uh, selection of propellers. Um, I know there are people out there, many of you will know who they are, um, who actually claim to be able to do very accurate propeller matching to your aeroplane. We didn't do as much of that. We, we basically said, well, try that one, try that one, try that one, try that one, you know, which is the best one? Which makes it go fastest? Um, and um, anyway, uh, we eventually chose propeller. It's a two bladed 1.4 uh, metre propeller and we reckon we're achieving about 85% propeller efficiency which is pretty good actually you know unlikely to get much better than that so uh, in terms of result we're we're in the right place I think. Rotation characteristics um, the need to rotate the aeroplane it was always known it's always a challenge with a canard that basically um, you've got to get the nose off the ground you've got to get off the nose off the ground when when the aerofoil here is actually substantially flat to the ground Um, so the only um, uh, rotation or lift generation you're getting from the canard is basically through the deflection of the elevators Um, and this was a key driver in the selection of a slotted elevator, quite unusual, normally you have a slotted flap but not a slotted elevator, This this was a slotted elevator and because of the choice of hinge point um, it also translates a little bit aft, so you can kind of call it a Fowler elevator as well, which is very unusual. Um, nevertheless, notwithstanding all of that thought that went into it, rotation is rather delayed. Uh, the aeroplane will fly very happily at 35 knots and less. Um, it will pitch up very uh, vigorously at 40 knots, but on the ground we're 50 knots plus before, before the nose will come up. So we're spending a lot of time on the ground where we don't need to be um, and a consequence of that is that the takeoff roll is rather longer than it could be. Um, so that is an area that we are still focusing on in, and you'll see how in a moment. Um, it does impact on the takeoff distance. The basic reason is the, uh, the CG obviously is forward of the main wheels. So the CG is pushing the nose wheel onto the ground. The engine thrust line is high, so actually the engine pushing is also pushing the nose on the ground. And those two things basically overwhelmed the canard's ability to generate lift to get the nose up. We did look at lengthening nose leg, and in fact the uh, nose leg is longer now than it was right at the very beginning. We were hoping that maybe if we crank it up a little bit, we can get a little bit of angle of attack onto the uh, canard and make it work better. But actually, for... Um, a, f- a fair chunk of nosewheel uh, leg lengthening that was negligible. Couldn't see it in terms of difference in rotation characteristics. Um, we did play with the thrust line for a while, seeing if we uh, by tilting the thrust line down we could um, uh, we could improve the rotation characteristics. Again, very marginal results. Um, <laughs> you know, stupid things you start thinking about. You go, Wouldn't it be great if we could compress the nose wheel and then at about 40 knots you could pull a trigger and poof, <laughs> fire the nose wheel. And, <laughs> and go, no, 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 no. <laughs> Let's not do that. Um, the solution, real solution is going to be move the main wheels forward so that the, uh, the nose down moment from the centre of gravity is going to be less uh, than it is at the moment. And actually that's what we're looking at for production. Uh, engine characteristics, the engine has been robust and reliable. Um, it's a very light and simple design, single rotor, uh, rotary engine. It's been great, actually, the engine's been really good. Very long service intervals, we started out with 50 hours, uh, and we're up to 250 now and Rotron are telling us that they have an aspiration to get to 500 hours servicing intervals, which is great and for, the, uh, for the owners in the future you know, it's yet another cost saving uh, in the operation of the aircraft. Um, This however was the first manned application of this engine. It's done thousands of hours in UAVs but never had a man in front of it. Um, And one of the things that that produces is uh, the way that people want to use an engine in a UAV is rather different from the way that people want to use an uh, engine in a manned aeroplane. Basically the manned aeroplane application people want to be able to use the engine more flexibly, use it at power settings um, and modulate it a lot Um, and this uh, was a whole area of exploiting the engine which basically Rotron hadn't done Um, so uh, setting up the ECU, uh, the ECU was a military standard ECU we've changed now to another supplier but um, had about 1600 parameters you could set up, you could set up everything about everything for every point in the flight envelope but basically it was very difficult to be able to um, keep a hold of all of that Um, so that has been a challenge uh, and continues to be a challenge but we're hoping with the new ECU which is far simpler um, we're going to get a far better setup for the engine but I would hasten to add the engine's been entirely reliable I'm going to talk about two failures here nothing to do with the engine actually um, first one, uh, it's that weight thing again, um, earthing strap. Uh, most of us in this room know what an earthing strap is. All right, It's a nice braided bit of uh, stainless steel stuff. It's fairly substantial. It's bolted to stuff at either end. No, far too heavy, so we had a bit of fuse wire. Uh, no, it was a bit better than that. W- but anyway, it was very light Okay, uh, and um, vibration and it, and, it, and it snapped. It snapped at the engine uh, end. Uh, right before our first display at Cywell, which was oh, no, and it killed the aeroplane. Um, so uh, we were lucky; it didn't go in the air. Um, but uh, um, that was another weight issue, and now we've got a much more substantial earthing strap on the aeroplane. Um, the other failure we had was uh, for other completely non-engine-related um, reasons. We had a catastrophic voltage drop during uh, one particular flight and because the fuel pump, the oil pump and the water pump are all electrically driven eventually when the voltage gets too long, too low those things stop and uh, they did stop and the engine did stop Um, and Dodge Bailey, my fellow test pilot um, did a very good job of putting the aeroplane back on the ground Um, Right, directional stability (laughs) and control Uh, Now we're getting into the sort of meat of it Um, the initial characteristics of the directional stability control of the aeroplane uh, were poor. Um, the yaw stability was um, very low and particularly low at stall speed. In fact, I have been heard to say that as you got to the stall, it was pretty much a frisbee. I mean, it didn't care which way it went. It, yeah, it, so, um, very low uh, yaw stability. Um, we had very low yaw control power. I couldn't actually move the nose around very much, particularly at low speeds. And we were also getting in any sideslip, however that was generated either with a pedal or by trying to roll the aeroplane very fast and we'll come on to adverse aero and yaw in a moment. But if you got sideslip by any method, Then we were getting stalling on the fin and I'll try and show that to you uh, in a moment. Okay, um, this is a uh, steady heading sideslip test so basically I'm going to fly the aeroplane straight, I'm going to put, steadily put left pedal on, I'm going to coordinate with the stick so that I keep flying in the same direction but we do get sideslip in that direction So, so our nose is going round but I'm still flying that way. Um, so that's what you're going to see. Um, this shadow is uh, an ego, uh, a GoPro camera which is mounted on the wing. It's the shadow of that. But um, you'll see the sort of your angle. You'll get a, get an impression of the sort of your angle we're getting uh, just by watching that shadow, because you'll see it track backwards. Um, the fin is covered in tufts, little wool tufts, um, and. Uh, if the airflow is happy, all the wall tufts sit down in nice straight lines across the fin. If it gets unhappy, uh, it's separating, then you'll see all the little wall tufts all start riffling about. Um, what we're going to see, um, just I hope you'll be able to see it, but uh, uh, you'll see initially uh, the wall tufts get a bit unhappy up here, um, and then it gets a bit more unhappy sort of top corner, and then it basically progresses down diagonally. Until eventually the whole fin is stalled. So let's um, let's see if we can uh, let's see if you can see that. Okay, all fairly attached at the moment. All quite nice. Getting a bit unhappy up here. Unhappy here. Yeah, and unhappy all the way across. All right, happens happens quite quickly, but. um, that just shows that the the whole the whole fin was uh, was stalling. Um, this is a um, it's a rapid roll. Currently we're in a left-hand bank, and what I'm going to do, you'll see the aileron come up, um, and I'm just going to roll to the right, and uh, I don't make any attempt to coordinate that roll with the rudders. All right, so we just allow the airplane to do what it's going to do, and the adverse aileron yaw. Is as we roll to the right it's going to make the airplane yaw to the left Um, and this happens very quickly Um, but basically what you should see um, is uh, again you'll see all of the the little tufts on the fin are going to get very unhappy and separate. There they are, they're all stuck on at the moment, all nice straight lines here we go, here's the aileron, look poof (laughs) <laughs> all went very very quickly, right? it, it happens very very quickly and what that means to me as a pilot is um, yeah the aeroplane yours and you go okay well that's alright but then you get this big hesitation as the, as the fin stalls um, so you get very untidy rolling characteristics, feels very unpleasant. Um, so um, that was an issue that we needed to, uh, uh, to solve. So, the, um, I've read all that already. The other thing that we, we found was that the air brake effect that we were meant to get from the rudders both being splayed out was minimal. I mean, you could hardly notice um, when you had the air brakes out. What did we do? Um, right, you can see on the back here we've got some uh, carbon that we bonded on basically two, two plates of carbon um, into which we were able to slot a number of experimental uh, extensions to the fin and the rudder and we went through three iterations of this version 1, 2 and 3 uh, and we did this to uh, increase the vertical tail volume right, obviously the, the, the fins have an area They also have a distance behind the centre of gravity, if you multiply the area of the fins by the distance behind the centre of gravity you get something called vertical tail volume. Um, So we wanted to increase that, you can either do that by just making them bigger, or you can move them further back. Well, we didn't have a huge amount of flex to move them backwards, so mainly through getting them bigger, but you'll see we cheated a bit. All of that was to improve the stability of the aeroplane. If you make the aeroplane more stable, it doesn't want to move so much. So there's a paradox here that the more you improve the stability, actually you have to improve the control even more. uh, Because the aeroplane is so much more stable now, so you need a bigger control surface to be able to disturb it. So the area increase of the rudders was much greater than the area increase of the fin okay so you can see here uh, one of the experimental um, setups that we had uh, and you can see uh, the sort of areas we were adding uh, we added a ventral fin um, Giotto hates it you know that design driven bit it's got to look beautiful he doesn't like it really yeah, it's not very beautiful is it Giotto? <laughs> okay, so um, but I, I uh, wanted this to be here because um, when we eventually get to try and try and spin this aeroplane, hopefully not spin it, but if it were possible to spin this aeroplane, the only the the fin surfaces are out here. Um, the aeroplane is very short, so when it spins, if it spins, it's going to basically spin a, somewhere around the center of gravity, not very far away. And, and these fins are basically just going to be rotating around the centre of gravity. Um, they're not going to have what you normally have with an aeroplane, which is a big rudder, a fin and rudder out the back. is actually going to oppose the spin. These aren't going to oppose it at all, they're just going to go round and round around you. Um, they don't really care. Um, so what I wanted was some, some area on the centre line that's actually going to oppose any rotation in a spin. Um, and you'll see later we'll, eventually we'll get to go and try and do this and we'll take a view about whether the ventral fin needs to, uh, can, needs to stay or whether it can go um, we, um, Thanks to Ivan Ivan Shaw here um, designer of the Europa aeroplane uh, was very good to uh, come and give us some of his time and his experience in terms of starting up a light aircraft company uh, it was a very entertaining day Iron. But one of the things he suggested to us was um, Fletner strips. Now flattener strips, um, uh, you're all familiar with these sorts of things that, that can slide down some A4 pages and, and turn them into a little book. Um, basically that's a Fletner strip. all right. And if you put that on the back edge of a, of a control surface, essentially what it does is it just thickens up the trailing edge of the control surface and it can help with control effectiveness particularly when you've got controls that are sort of hiding inside a boundary layer so it can often improve the effectiveness of a control at low angles. So we tried some flatness strips on here and um, uh, they did improve matters but they did not improve matters sufficiently that we could stick with the original fins and rudders Um, but it was a good tip and thank you for that Ivan. We also looked at stall strips um, you will see um, there's basically a line of dots going up here. Um, we installed just behind that a store strip which you won't be able to see. So I'll zoom in a bit and you probably still can't see it. Um, no, it doesn't come up very well, but... Um, uh, yeah, basically up this line here, there's a, a zig-zag. Um, Oh yes, you can see it there, good spot, yeah, so on the side screens it shows up rather better um, But you can see there's a sort of uh, ziggy-zag bit of uh, um, plastic And you just stick it on there and what it does is it takes what is a laminar flow uh, up to that point on the, uh, on the section And it just trips it into turbulent but not separated flow And having re-energised the flow, it it sticks rather better for a bit longer. So it opposes the stall. Um, And that was quite effective, but again, not effective enough to stick with what we had. Um, So eventually we came up with a final design. um, And that's what's on the aeroplane now. You can see uh, the fins and rudders are very much larger than they were. Um, The rudder now extends below the wing so as the rudder goes out the bottom bit of the rudder actually comes in Um, We've got much greater fin sweep um, and that's the cheat I talked about by sweeping the whole thing you you can effectively move it further aft Um, so we've we've gained a bit of um, moment arm by doing that and by sweeping the fin we also improve the stall resistance of the fin Um, that's a comparison um, of the original fin uh, with the black outline here Um, you can see the extension below the wing was very very little now we've got quite a big extension below the wing Uh, and you can also see that actually the rudder area compared with the whole fin and rudder is now a much greater proportion of the whole area than it was previously. Um, what it gives us now is we've got good yaw stability and control throughout flight envelope. Um, it's now possible to balance all the maneuvers. Previously if I put full aileron in and full rudder I couldn't quite keep the aeroplane balanced um, at some flight conditions. Now I can, I can keep the aeroplane balanced uh, with application of rudder, which is a good thing. Um, but the air brake effect is still quite poor. Uh, we'll come back to that. Um, but those are the fins and rudders that will go on the uh, the production aeroplane. Ventral fin, as I say, jury's out on that one. We'll, we'll go and abuse the aeroplane at the stall at some point, or rather I will, and, um, and then we'll make a judgement about uh, whether the ventral fin can uh, stay or go. Um, here's the... Um, uh, the new fin and rudder uh, and we're going to do that same sort of steady heading side slip thing all right, in the same direction as we did it last time. Again you'll see the, uh, the shadow here and you'll see that march aft uh, and I hope you'll be able to see the, uh, um, the tufts and you'll see uh, that they don't get as, happy as th- unhappy as they did before. Bit of unhappiness here starting. Bit of separation. You'll see this start coming backwards. You see the aileron is up because I'm opposing the roll induced from the rudder. There. Little bit of you know little bit of separation, but there we go. We're right back here, the shadow's right back here now. But these ones at the front are all fully stuck. All right, so that same test as we did before and we got to uh, uh, higher side-slip angles in that than we did in the previous <coughs> test and yet the, uh, the fin is not stalling now. So that's a good thing. Right, adverse aileron yore I've mentioned already. Um, the ailerons on the aeroplane are here, com- fairly conventional aeroplanes, a- ailerons, they are differential all right, for, I, I know a lot of you will know but differential means when you've got you've always got an upgoing and a down-going aileron if it's a differential then the one that goes up goes up rather more than the one that goes down alright so the aim is for that one to generate more drag all right, so that you oppose this this issue of adverse aileron yaw um, freeze Freeze ailerons means that the the nose of the aileron itself um, sticks out in front of uh, the hinge of the aileron so that if this aileron, for instance, was going up, then the nose of the aileron will stick out below the surface of uh, the wing and it generates drag. So the aim is to generate drag on the up-growing aileron side um, because... You're getting lift induced drag from the other side. Okay, um, I'd like to just say from the very beginning, uh, the roll control itself, the ability to generate roll, has been excellent. It's one of the enhancing features of the aeroplane. It's really good, and you'll see some of that a bit later on. Um, but the adverse aileron your appeared large right from the beginning. Okay, whenever you use the, the, uh, the roll control, then you were getting a lot of side slip. Um, and the your control power from the rudders was not adequate to entirely balance the rolling that you wanted to do. Um, but was it bad ailerons or was it inadequate your stability? Mm, don't really know. And you don't know until you fix one of them. Um, so uh, we fixed one as described before, got the new fins and rudders. And uh, so we go and give this another go. Now, what you're going to see, this is going to happen very, very quick again. You're going to see a roll, a a rapid roll to the right. Um, You'll see the aileron come up. It's going to slightly obscure this fin. But if you watch carefully uh, up there, you'll see what happens. Three, two, one, now. There. Much unhappiness. All right. The, the, The fin. Um, Notwithstanding the new fin and rudder design, the amount of yaw that we're getting from application of aileron is still too great, all right, and it's still sufficient to actually stall the fin and rudder. Um, So that tells me, before I didn't know, is it bad ailerons or is it not enough stability? and uh, we've put loads of stability on now and we're happy with that and we're still getting stall- fin stalling so yeah it's bad ailerons, Okay, so we need to do something with the ailerons um, We did an experiment with um, a sharpened leading edge um, the, if the leading edge of the aileron um, you can, one of the tricks you can play is depending on the profile of that, depending on how rounded it is you can vary the amount of drag that is generated by the nose as it sticks below um, the surface of the wing. Um, and if you want a lot of drag, you want a sharp leading edge. So that's what we tried. We, uh, we stuck on um, a bit of plastic, square cornered plastic, um, and we gave that a go. And um, uh, it had two effects, um, both of them unfortunate. One at about half the roll rate, which was not good, because that was one of the enhancing features of the aeroplane. I was not very disappointed about that. Um, But the other thing was um, we found that uh, if you made um, more than about a half uh, roll stick input, you got a phenomenal pitch, um, bunt. It was down to about minus half a G, Um, most unexpected. So you see sort of rolling. (laughs) hang on a moment, I didn't ask for that. Um, And uh, we speculated what was happening is... You you've got. If I try and roll to the roll to the left, then you know that one's going down. Okay, that one's going up. But we think what was happening was the the sharp leading edge on the aileron was actually yeah it was generating some drag, but it was deflecting the airflow downwards. So on both sides of the airplane, we've got airflow being deflected downwards. Effectively, what we done is we just moved the elevators to the trailing edge of the edge of the wing. So uh, that was giving us this big nose down pitch, very unpleasant. So uh, the sharpened leading edge experiment lasted one sortie and they came off again. And um, the aim for production is we know, uh, although it was in the design that the ailerons should have a substantial differential movement, in practice they're not as much as they should have been. Um, but we've got ways um, of improving that uh, and what's going to go into the production aeroplane is a very much better system for generating differential movement in the ailerons, um, and given that even now, if I go full roll stick and full rudder, I can keep the ball centered. Then anything we do from now on is going to be beneficial anyway. So, um, so that's the that's the solution to the adverse aileron yaw. Longitudinal stability and control. Um, This is Dodge Bailey, uh, uh, one of my fellow test pilots, John Brownlow, the other one in the audience here somewhere. Um, uh, Right from the beginning, stability was okay, fine. Didn't need to improve the stability, but the control was extremely light. Extremely light. Um, You would like to have maybe four or five pounds per G in this sort of aeroplane. We were getting like, ounces per G. Um, and uh, what that gave was um, very poor feel around trim, um, very poor trimming accuracy, um, poor gust- um, response in gusts through something called the mannequin effect. If, I, if I'm a pilot and I sit in the aeroplane and I'm holding the stick and the aeroplane goes, <laughs> it's very difficult not to shake the controls and that's, that's called mannequin effect. Um, Mannequin, you know, just stands in a shop window, all right, it's a, it's a dumb piece of stuff, all right. It's just a connection be- between uh, you and the aeroplane. And you can't help shaking the, shaking the controls. Um, so uh, that was not good. Uh, it was not pleasant in, uh, uh, in gusts, in, on bumpy days. The first flight, first time I ever got airborne in the aeroplane, I had a pitch PIO, um, which was unpleasant because... It was, just, it was just very, very light. Very light touch was required. First time Dodge Bailey flew the aeroplane, he came down and he sort of stroked his chin in his very sort of considered sort of way, and he went, it's not a completely unalloyed delight, Keith, is it? <laughs> and he was right. <laughs> um, the uh, root cause was um, the elevator design uh, for all sorts of reasons, which I rehearsed earlier about rotation. Um, we've got a hinge which is set back quite a long way. This is a sketch that I did on a board and I think David took a picture of it. Um, um, so the hinge was a long way back on the elevator um, to give this um, this sort of uh, Fowler elevator, slotted elevator effect. Um, so what was happening was forward of the hinge line this whole portion of the elevator here was lifting upwards very strongly the back bit is lifting upwards and basically those two things balancing each other so we're getting even as you move the elevator you're getting very little force in the control Um, and that was a problem now the solution was effectively to move the hinge um, forward on the elevator so that all the up forces are now being felt by the pilot as a moment in the controls so we get some feel. Um, In fact what happened I'll show you in a moment is we didn't actually move the hinge forward what we did was effectively cut off the nose cut off the nose of this uh, elevator but this is a sketch of of, an experiment that we thought of uh, which is basically to seal this slot so that effectively this front portion of the elevator became irrelevant So we could do an experiment on on how to to improve matters So we did this sealed slot experiment um, and that gave us good control Um, There was a previous, you should have seen a previous graph and I'm just going to see if I can get it No, it's not going to come up Um, Don't know why that's disappeared But um, if you'd have had the previous graph then uh, this yellow line here is the uh, up here we've got um, stick force and we've got G along here, this is 1G, this is 2G, so this is a 1G increment and uh, if you'd have seen the previous one that yellow line was completely flat right across here, All right. almost no stick force required to put any G on the aeroplane but now um, we were getting um, quite acceptable um, stick force per G um, about £3 per G, we were getting good feel, good trimming uh, and a far improved gust response, like right, that mannequin effect had largely gone away. Uh, we did a proper redesign based on the experiment, we said yes we're onto it you know we've got the solution um, and uh, we came up with a, a new design so the blue lines are where we were with this long nose on the elevator and the red lines basically we moved the hinge point just up there and we cut off the nose and reprofiled this slot Um, and that gave us very good control it's giving us about four and a half pounds per g which is even better than (laughs) we had in the sealed slot experiment Um, good feel, good trimming, very good gust response but um, it does cause a problem now um, with stalling um, which we're working through at the moment Um, With the original canard and elevator and uh, the Mark II fins, um, the stalling behaviour was very good. Um, The aeroplane would sit a full back stick and it would just nod because stalling in a canard means stalling the canard. Um, Basically you pull, 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 eventually the canard gives up and when the canard gives up the nose goes down. It's great. And you can sit there with a stick uh, all the way back and the aeroplane will just nod. And in fact, if you sat there with a stick right back at about 32 knots, something like that, and you put power on, the aeroplane would climb. So it would climb in the stall, which is great. Uh, It's a very, very benign handling characteristic. Um, uh, So we had great great characteristics. We had the right speeds. Main plane wasn't stalling. That's a big no-no in a canard. If the main plane stalls... Basically, if the main plane stalls, you lose, lose lift at the back, the tail of the aeroplane goes down, the angle of attack goes up. It's exactly what you don't want. Exactly what you don't want. So the main plane must never stall. Uh, but we did have this ability to climb in the stall, which was great. Um, problem is, uh, with the new canard Elevator, um, surprisingly, um, the, the new profiled elevator was expected to be less effective than the previous one. In fact, it turned out to be more effective. Um, So it was generating far larger lift coefficients than the previous configuration. And What that meant was we could get far higher angles of attack, far lower speeds than we'd ever done before. Um, That meant that the directional stability which we'd restored with the uh, new fins and rudders became ever more challenged because you're not going very fast. Um, and we found we could stall the main plane. This is just a snap, but you can just see there, I tried to get a snapshot of um, the stall. What's happening here is actually the right wing has stalled, and the aeroplane's doing that. Um, uh, If we had a picture of the right wing, which we don't, then you'd see it completely stalled, but you can see that even on the left wing there was some evidence of stall. Um, So this is a problem, uh, and it's one we're working through at the moment. Uh, we did uh, some flying recently, we'll do some more flying next week um, trying to come up with a solution for the Canarden elevator to give us to restore that very good handling that we had before. So um, uh, we've been experimenting with sealing the slot again and that experiment continues and we may have to juggle a little bit with the centre of gravity range as well um, to get it good. Last thing, uh, and I'm aware, Mr. Chairman, we're, uh, um, uh, I've spoken about 55 already. Um, the flight path control on the approach. This is the first approach I ever did. This is the end of the first flight. Uh, it's a stitched together thing, very cleverly by um, David. But you can basically see how flat the approach is. Very, very flat. Um, and that's because the airplane glides extremely well. It's a nice problem to have. Um, uh, 16 to 1, the uh, design said, uh, on the one occasion that I've done some measurements with the engine off, it's actually out on the engine on, with the engine on and at idle it comes down rather more quickly than it does with the engine off, but with the engine off... I I measured on one occasion 22 to one glide ratio. Now, um, when many of us here were air cadets and things, you were killed for a 22 to one glide ratio in the glider you were sitting in. Um, So it's it's very good. And actually on a decent thermally day, I reckon you stand a good chance switching the engine off and and, and getting some free flying, let alone very cheap flying. Um, But um, what it doesn't allow is, uh, glide performance. very good, very flat approaches. But it doesn't allow you really to fly an approach in the way that the PPL teaches it, using you know, pitch and power to adjust your approach angle. Um, it glides so well that you're into glider type techniques where you are adjusting the geometry of the circuit to ensure your touchdown point at the moment. So um, we do need to do some work on uh, <laughs> the air brakes. You can see here. Um, uh, about where I'm standing was a very brave Dave Bowie um, <laughs> with with a camera, um, uh, but we were trying to get some, some pictures of uh, the rudders deployed as air brakes, um, and uh, uh, you can see that actually they don't move perhaps as far as we'd like them to, so hence this rather low air braking effect. Um, okay, what next? Uh, We need to go on and do some aggravated stalling. That means um, decelerating rather more quickly than we have already, doing it in turns. Um, We need to go and see if we can spin the airplane. Uh, We need to do some more air brake testing. We need to expand the envelope out to its VNE and and to its uh, G limit, which is intended eventually to be plus 4, minus 2. And then we need to do inverted commas certification testing. It's a single seat deregulated aeroplane, we don't actually have to do anything, we shouldn't, didn't need to have done any of this, we could have just sold it, but that was never the ethos of the com- company, we want it to be, we want to be able to say to our customers that notwithstanding the fact it's SSDR, we have effectively tested it to you know, what would be the relevant regulations if it was a bit heavier. Um, so we will be doing that. Lessons learned, get the basics right. Um, when we first flew, I mean we nearly didn't flew, fly because the brakes weren't quite right and it didn't quite steer properly and I could hardly see out at times because the canopy was misted. So, uh, simple, simple stuff, but um, you know, you've got to get that stuff right, otherwise you're not going to go flying. Um, get some time in, like that I said about going to air shows and just driving it around, just getting time on the airframe is a good thing. Shake it about a bit. Um, Yes, um, you, you know it's a new baby and, and it's, there's only one of them and this and the other so there's a reticence about going to rough grass fields and this and the other because it's all going to shake about and yes it is, it's all going to shake about and things are going to break and you learn, you learn so that you end up with your customers not learning those faults um, so we've actually, you know, many many things have been changed in detail to make the aeroplane more robust as, um, as a result of Taking it about the place. Use domain experts. I referred to the propeller thing. We probably could have saved ourselves some time by getting some people in that um, uh, really knew uh, that specific subject. Beware the tyranny of weight saving. Yes, very, very important to save weight. Of course it was, um, and you want to keep as much performance as you can. Um, but you know the, the earthing strap was the classic example. You know that was probably some weight that we saved that we shouldn't have done. But we learned that lesson by shaking it about a bit. Um, First applications of critical components like the engine can soak up time. Yes, it's not a proven engine, so that soaked up more time than perhaps we'd have liked. Um, And everything takes longer than you expect it will. Um, I've got about a two minute clip here. Uh, Is that all right, Mr. Chairman? Are we all right for some time? Um, This is Cywell last year. Um, It's not the whole display. Um, I just wanted to give you a sort of flavour of what it's like. Two techniques for rotation. You can either put the stick all the way back and wait or you can get the speed roughly right and then progressively bring the, the elevator back or the stick back, as I did there, produces a slightly more controlled um, rotation This is the original Canarden Elevator. Um, So we're into the ounces per G here. And there's a couple of of occasions in this display where you actually see the aeroplane bounce up and down. And you you can actually see me. It goes through just a cycle or two of oscillation in pitch. You see the very good roll rates we're getting with the aeroplane. R- rolling out of that turn, did you see there was just just a just a little bobble there? All that's gone away with the uh, the new standard of elevator or new standard of canard and elevator. There's another bubble. It's quite a bumpy day. Minimum speeds in this display about 40, 42 knots, something like that. Maximum speeds about 105. Again, you can see the nice roll rate. That's pretty much where it stops. Yeah. Um, So uh, that's the Ego. Um, You can see it's a great little aeroplane. I love flying it. I call it, you know, it's one of those silly grin machines. You get out of it and you've got a silly grin on your face because it's so much fun. All right. We've had some problems. Um, We've been steadily working through them. We've still got a few to uh, entirely knock on the head, but we've got plans uh, for all the little wrinkles that I've talked about uh, tonight. And uh, I just, I commend the aeroplane to you. It's gonna be a great little aeroplane to fly. Um, We've had a lot of support from many, many people, many more than listed on that thing. Um, I can't list them all now and I don't intend to try. Um, And that's over to you for some questions. (laughs)